Hello and welcome to Hari Cuts. I'm Hari Stephen Kumar and this is of course the pandemic season of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 21st. It is still a global pandemic out there um, and this is episode 12 of this season which means it is uh, time for me to read now section 12 of David Foster Wallace's essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, from 1996. And why not? Why not take a respite from everything and go away for a little while with David Foster Wallace in the Caribbean as he writes about how terrible cruise ships are. And in this section in particular, well, who knows what he's going to talk about. Yesterday was a very short section. Let's see what David Foster Wallace has to say about cruise ships, about tourism, about whatever it is that's on his mind as he's sitting out there in the uh, in the Caribbean in 1996. Let us now go to section 12 of his essay. Mornings in port are a special time for the semi-agoraphobe, because just about everybody else gets off the ship and goes ashore for organized shore excursions, OSE, or for unstructured peripatetic tourist stuff. And the MV Nader's upper decks have the eerily delicious deserted quality of your folks' house when you're homesick as a kid and everybody else is off at work and school, etc., Right now, it's 0930 hours on 15 March, Ides Wednesday, and we're docked off Cozumel, Mexico. I'm on deck 12. A couple guys in software company t-shirts jog fragrantly by every couple minutes. But other than that, it's just me and the ZNO and hat and about a thousand empty and identically folded high-quality deck chairs. The 12-aft towel guy has almost nobody to exercise his zeal on, and by 1000 hours, I'm on my fifth new towel. Footnote 74. Seven times around deck 12 is a mile, and I'm one of very few naderites under about 70 who doesn't jog like a fiend up here now that the weather is nice. Early a.m. is the annular rush hour of deck 12 jogging, I've already seen a couple of juicy and keystone-quality jogging collisions. End of footnote. Here, the semi-agoraphobe can stand alone at the ship's highest port rail and gaze pensively out to sea. The sea off Cozumel is a kind of watery indigo through which you can see the powder white of the bottom. In the middle distance... Underwater coral formations are big cloud shapes of deep purple. You can see why people say of calm seas that they are, quote, glassy. At 1000 hours, the sun assumes a kind of Brewster's angle with respect to the surface, and the harbor lights up as far as the eye can see. The water moves a million little ways at once, and each move makes a sparkle. Out past the coral, the water gets progressively darker in orderly, baconish stripes. I think this phenomenon has to do with perspective. It's all extremely pretty and peaceful. 
Besides me and the TG and the orbiting joggers, there's only a supine older lady reading Codependent No More. And a man standing way up at the forepart of the starboard rail, videotaping the sea. This sad and cadaverous guy, who by the second day I had christened Captain Video, has tall, hard, gray hair and Birkenstocks and very thin, hairless calves. And he is one of the cruise's more prominent eccentrics. Footnote 75, but I'll come back to that. Pretty much everybody on the Nader qualifies as camera crazy, but Captain Video camcords absolutely everything, including meals, empty hallways, endless games of geriatric bridge, even leaping onto Deck 11's raised stage during pool party to get the crowd from the musician's angle. You can tell that the uh, magnetic record of Captain Video's Mega Cruise experience is going to be this Warholianly dull thing that is exactly as long as the cruise itself. Captain Video is the only passenger besides me who I know for a fact is cruising without a relative or companion. And certain additional similarities between CV and me, like, for example, the semi-agoraphobic reluctance to leave the ship in port, for one thing. These similarities tend to make me uncomfortable, and I try to avoid him as much as possible. Back to uh, footnote 75 about Captain Video being one of the cruise's more prominent eccentrics. Footnote 75. Other eccentrics on the Seven and Sea include the 13-year-old kid with a toupee who wears his big orange life jacket all week and sits on the wood floor of the upper decks reading Jose Philip Farmer paperbacks with three different boxes of Kleenex around him at all times. And the bloated and dead-eyed guy who sits in the same chair at the same 21 table in the Mayfair Casino every day from 1,200 hours to 0,300 hours, drinking Long Island iced tea and playing 21 at a narcotized underwater pace. There's the guy who sleeps by the pool, who does just what his name suggests, except he does it all the time, even in the rain. A hairy stomached guy of maybe 50, a copy of Megatrends open on his chest, sleeping without sunglasses or sunblock, without moving, for hours and hours in full and high-watt sun, and never in my sight burns or wakes up. I I suspect that at night they move him down to his room on a gurney. There's also the two unbelievably old and cloudy-eyed couples who sit in a quartet in upright chairs just inside the clear plastic walls that enclose the area of Deck 11 that has the pools and Windward Cafe. And they sit facing out, i.e. out through the plastic sheeting, watching the ocean and ports like there's something on TV, and also never once visibly moving. It seems relevant that most of the Nader's eccentrics are eccentrics in stasis, 
what distinguishes them is they're doing the same thing hour after hour and day after day without moving. Uh, Captain Video is, is an active exception. People are surprisingly tolerant of Captain Video until the second to last night's midnight Caribbean blowout by the pools, when he keeps breaking into the conga line and trying to shift its course so that it can be recorded at better advantage. And, and then there's a kind of bloodless but unpleasant uprising against Captain Video, and he lays low for the rest of the cruise, possibly organizing and, and editing his tapes. End of footnote. The semi-agoraphobe can also stand at Deck 12's starboard rail and look way down at the army of nader passengers being disgorged by the Deck 3 egress. They keep pouring out the door and down the narrow gangway. As each person's sandal hits the pier, a sociolinguistic transformation from cruiser to tourist is affected. At this very moment, 1,300-plus upscale tourists with currency to unload and experiences to experience and record compose a serpentine line stretching all the way down the Cozumel Pier, which pier is poured cement and a good quarter-mile long and leads to the Tourism Center, all caps, uh, its signs in English significantly, which is a, a kind of mega Quonset structure where organized shore excursions in cabs or mopeds into San Miguel are available. The word around good old Table 64 last night was that in primitive and incredibly poor Cozumel, the U.S. dollar is treated like a UFO. Quote, they worship it when it lands, unquote. Footnote 77. In Ocho Rios on Monday, on organized shore excursions, the big tourist draw was apparently some sort of waterfall that a whole group of naderites could walk up inside with a guide and umbrellas to protect their cameras. In Grand Cayman yesterday, the big thing was duty-free rum and something called Bernard Passman Black Coral Art. Here in Cozumel, it's supposedly silver jewelry hawked by hard-dickering peddlers, and more duty-free liquor, and a fabled bar in San Miguel called Carlos and Charlie's, where they allegedly give you shots of something that's mostly lighter fluid. End of footnote. Locals along the Cozumel Pier are offering naderites a chance to have their picture taken holding a very large iguana. Yesterday, on the Grand Cayman Pier, locals had offered them the chance to have their picture taken with a guy wearing a peg leg and hook, while off the nader's port bow, a fake pirate ship plowed back and forth across the bay all morning, firing blank broadsides and getting on everybody's nerves. The natives' crowds move in couples and quartets and groups and packs. The line undulates complexly. Everybody's shirt is some kind of pastel, 
and is festooned with the cases of recording equipment. And 85% of the females have white visors and wicker purses. And everybody down below has on sunglasses with this year's fashionable accessory, a padded fluorescent cord that attaches to the glasses arms so the glasses can hang around your neck and you can put them on and take them off a lot. Footnote 78. Apparently, it's no longer in fashion to push the frames of the sunglasses up to where they ride, just above the crown of your skull, which is what I used to see upscale sunglass wearers do a lot. The habit has now gone the way of tying your white Lacoste tennis sweater's arms across your chest and wearing it like a cape. End of footnote. Off to my right, southeast, now, another megacruiser is moving in for docking someplace that must be pretty close to us, judging by its approach vector. It moves like a force of nature and resists the idea that so much mass is being steered by anything like a, a hand on a pillar. I can't imagine what trying to maneuver one of these puppies into the pier is like. Parallel parking a semi into a spot the same size as the semi with a blindfold on and four tabs of LSD in you, uh, that might come close. There's no empirical way to know. They won't even let me near the ship's bridge, not after the Aujus snafu. Our docking this morning at sunrise involved an ant-like frenzy of crewmen and shore personnel and an anchor, footnote 79, the, the anchor is gigantic and must weigh a hundred tons, and delightfully, it really is anchor-shaped, i.e. the same shape as anchors in tattoos, end of footnote. An ant-like frenzy of crewmen and shore personnel and an anchor that spilled from the ship's navel and upward of a dozen ropes complexly knotted onto what looked like giant railroad ties studying the pier. The crew insist on calling the ropes lines, even though each one is at least the same diameter as a tourist's head. I, I cannot convey to you the sheer and surreal scale of everything. The, the towering ship, the ropes the ties, the anchor, the pier, the vast lapis lazuli dome of the sky. The Caribbean is, as ever, odorless. The floor of Deck 12 is tight-fitted planks of the same kind of corky and good-smelling wood you see in saunas. Looking down from a great height at your countrymen waddling in expensive sandals, into poverty-stricken ports is not one of the funner moments of a 7NC luxury cruise, however. There is something inescapably bovine about an American tourist in motion as part of a group. A certain greedy placidity about them. About us, rather. In port, we automatically become Peregrinator Americanus, the Lumpen Americaner, 
the ugly ones. For me, boviscopophobia, the morbid fear of being seen as bovine, is an even stronger motive than semi-agoraphobia for staying on the ship when we are in port. It's in port that I feel most implicated, guilty by perceived association. I've barely been out of the USA before, and never as part of a high-income herd. And in port, even up here above it all in Duck 12, just watching, I'm newly and unpleasantly conscious of being an American, the same way I'm always suddenly conscious of being white every time around. I'm, I'm around a lot of non-white people. I cannot help imagining us as we appear to them, the impassive Jamaicans and Mexicans, or especially to the non-Aryan preterite crew of the Nader. Footnote 81. And in my head, I go around and around about whether my fellow Naderites suffer the same steep self-disgust. From a height, watching them, I usually imagine that the other passengers are oblivious to the impassively contemptuous gaze of the local merchants, service people, photo-op with lizard vendors, etc. I usually imagine that my fellow tourists are too bovinely self-absorbed to even notice how we're looked at. At other times, though, it occurs to me that the other Americans on board quite possibly feel the same vague discomfort about their bovine American role in port that I do, but that they refuse to let their boviscopophobia rule them. They've paid good money to have fun and be pampered and record some foreign experiences, and they'll be goddamned if they're going to let some self-indulgent twinge of neurotic projection about how their Americanness appears to, to malnourished locals detract from the 7NC luxury cruise they've worked and saved for and decided they deserve. End of footnote. All week, I have found myself doing everything I can to distance myself in the crew's eyes from the bovine herd I'm part of to somehow unimplicate myself. I eschew cameras and sunglasses and pastel Caribbean wear. I make a big deal of carrying my own cafeteria tray, and I'm effusive in my thanks for the slightest service. Since so many of my shipmates shout, I make it a point of special pride to speak extra quietly to crewmen whose English is poor. At 10.35 hours, there are just one or two small clouds in a sky so blue here it hurts. Every dawn so far in port has been overcast. Then the ascending sun gathers force and disperses the clouds somehow, and for an hour or so the sky looks shredded. Then, by 0800 hours, an endless blue opens up like an eye and stays that way all a.m., one or two clouds always in the distance, as if for scale. There are massed formicatory maneuvers among pier workers with ropes and walkie-talkies down there now, 
as this other bright white megaship moves slowly in toward the pier from the right. And then, in the late a.m., the isolate clouds overhead start moving toward one another, and in the early p.m., they begin very slowly interlocking like jigsaw pieces. And by evening, the puzzle will be solved, and the sky will be the color of old dimes. Footnote 82. This dawn and dusk cloudiness was a pattern. In all, three of the week's days could be called substantially cloudy, and it rained a bunch of times, including all Friday in port in Key West. Again, I can see no way to blame the Nader or Celebrity Cruises Incorporated for this happenstance. <laughs> End of footnote. But of course, all this ostensibly ostensibly unimplicating behavior on my part is itself motivated by a self-conscious and somewhat condescending concern about how I appear to others that is, this concern is, 100% upscale American. Part of the overall despair of this luxury cruise is that no matter what I do, I cannot escape my own essential and newly unpleasant Americanness. This despair reaches its peak in port, at the rail, looking down at what I can't help being one of. Whether up here or down there, I am an American tourist, and I'm thus ex officio, large, fleshy, red, loud, coarse, condescending, self-absorbed, spoiled, appearance-conscious, ashamed, despairing, and greedy, the world's only known species of bovine carnivore. Here, as in the other ports, jet skis buzz the nadir all morning. There's about half a dozen this time. Jet skis are the mosquitoes of Caribbean ports, annoying and irrelevant and apparently always there. Their noise is a cross between a gargle and a chainsaw. I am tired of jet skis already, and I've never even been on a jet ski. I remember reading somewhere that jet skis are incredibly dangerous and accident-prone, and I, I take a certain unkind comfort in this as I watch blonde guys with washboard stomachs and sunglasses on fluorescent cords buzz around making hieroglyphs of foam. Instead of fake pirate ships, in Cozumel there are glass-bottom boats working the waters around the coral shadows. They move sluggishly because they're terribly overloaded with cruisers on an organized shore excursion. What's neat about the site is that everybody on the boats is looking straight down, a good 100-plus people per boat. It looks prayerful somehow, and sets off the boat's driver, a, a local who stares dully ahead at the same nothing that all drivers of all kinds of mass transport stare at. Footnote 83. Uh, this is a further self-esteem lorer, which is how bored all the locals look when they're dealing with U.S. tourists. We bore them. Boring somebody seems way worse than 
offending or disgusting them. <laughs> and a footnote. A red and orange parasail hangs dead still on the port horizon, a stick figure dangling. The twelfth aft towel guy, uh, a spectral check with eyes so inset they're black from brow shadow, stands very straight and expressionless by his cart, playing what looks like rock-paper-scissors with himself. I've learned that the 12-aft towel guy is immune to chatty journalistic probing. He gives me a look of what I can only call withering neutrality whenever I go get another towel. I am reapplying ZNO. Captain Video isn't filming now, but is looking at the harbor through a square he's made of his hands. He's the type where you can tell without even looking closely that he's talking to himself. This other mega cruise ship is now docking right next to us, a procedure which apparently demands a lot of coded blasts in its world-ending horn. But maybe the single best AM visual in the harbor is another big organized 7NC tourist thing. A group of Naderites is learning to snorkel in the lagoonish waters just offshore. Off the port bow, I can see a good 150 solid citizens floating on their stomachs, motionless, the classic dead man's float, looking like the massed and floating victims of some hideous mishap. From this height, a macabre and riveting sight. I've given up looking for dorsal fins in port. It turns out that sharks, apparently being short on aesthetic sense, are never seen in pretty Caribbean ports, though a couple Jamaicans had lurid if dubious stories of barracudas that could take off a limb in one surgical drive-by. Nor in Caribbean ports is there ever any evident kelp, glasswort, algaic skulls, or any of the sapropel the regular ocean's supposed to have. Probably sharks like murkier and scuzzier waters. Potential victims could see them coming too easily down here. Speaking of carnivores, Carnival Cruises Incorporated's good ship's ecstasy and tropicale are both anchored all the way across the harbor. In port, carnival megaships tend to stay sort of at a distance from other cruise ships, and my sense is that the other ships think this is just as well. The carnival ships have masses of 20-ish looking people hanging off their rails and seem at this distance to throb slightly, like a hi-fi's woofer. The rumors about carnival 7NCs are legion, one such rumor being that their cruises are kind of like floating meat market bars and that their ships bob with a conspicuous carnal squeakita, squeakita, squeakita at night. There's none of this kind of concupiscent behavior aboard the Nader, I'm happy to say. By now I've become a kind of 7NC snob, and when 
carnival or princess is mentioned in my presence, I feel my face automatically assume uh, Trudy and Esther's expression of classy distaste. But so there they are, the ecstasy and tropicale. And now, right up alongside the nadir on the other side of the pier is finally docked and secured the MV Dream Word with the peach on white color scheme that I think means it's owned by Norwegian Cruise Line. Its Deck 3 gangway protrudes and almost touches our Deck 3 gangway, sort of obscenely. And the DreamWords passengers, identical in all important respects to the Nader's passengers, are now streaming down the gangway and massing and moving down the pier in a kind of canyon of shadow formed by the tall walls of our two ships' hulls. The hulls hem them in and force a, a near defile that stretches endlessly. A lot of the DreamWords passengers turn and crane to marvel at the size of what's just disgorged them. Captain Video, now inclined over the starboard rail so that only the toes of his sandals are still touching deck, is filming them as they look up at us. And more than a, than a few of the Dream Wardites, way below, lift their own camcorders and point them up our way in a kind of almost defensive or retaliatory gesture. And for just a moment, they and Captain Video compose a tableau that looks almost classically postmodern. Because the Dreamward is lined up right next to us, almost porthole to porthole, with its Deck 12's rail right up flush against our Deck 12's rail, which on the scale of these ships means something around 100 meters, the Dreamward's Semi-agoraphobic shore shunners and I can stand at the rails and sort of check each other out in the sideways way of two muscle cars lined up at a spot stoplight. We can sort of see how we stack up against each other. I can see the DreamWords rail leaners looking the nader up and down. Their faces are shiny with high SPF sunblock. The dream word is blindingly white. White to a degree that seems somehow aggressive and makes the nader's own white look more like buff or cream. The, the dream word's snout is a little more tapered and aerodynamic looking than our snout. And its trim is a kind of fluorescent peach. And the beach umbrellas around its Deck 11 pools are also peach. Footnote 85. On all 7NC megaships, Deck 12 forms a kind of mezzanine-ish ellipse over Deck 11, which is always about half open air, Deck 11 is, and Deck 11 always has pools surrounded by plastic plexiglass walls. End of footnote. Our beach umbrellas are light orange, which has always seemed odd given the white and navy motif of the nader, and now seems to me ad hoc and shabby. The dream word has more pools on deck 11 than we do, plus what looks like a whole other additional 
pool behind glass on deck six. And their pool's blue is that distinctive chlorine blue. The Nader's two small pools are both seawater and kind of icky. Even though the pools in the celebrity brochure had sneakily had that electric blue look of good old chlorine. On all its decks, all the way down, the Dreamward's cabins have little white balconies for private open-air sea-gazing. Its deck 12 has a full-court basketball setup with color-coordinated nets and backboards as white as communion wafers. I notice that each of the myriad towel carts on the DreamWorks Deck 12 is manned by its very own towel guy, and that their towel guys are ruddily Nordic and non-spectral and have nothing resembling withering neutrality or boredom about their mien. The point is that standing here next to Captain Video, looking... I start to feel a, a covetous and almost prurient envy of the dream word. I imagine its interior to be cleaner than ours, larger, more lavishly appointed. I imagine the dream word's food being even more varied and punctiliously prepared, the ship's gift shop less expensive, and its casino less depressing, and its stage entertainment less cheesy, and its pillow mints bigger. The little private balconies outside the DreamWorks cabins in particular seem just way superior to a porthole of bank teller glass. And suddenly, private balconies seem absolutely crucial to the whole 7NC mega experience I am expected to try to convey. I spent several minutes fantasizing about what the bathrooms might be like on the good old dream word. I imagine its crew quarters being open for anybody at all to come down and moss out and shoot the shit, and the dream word's crew being open and genuinely friendly with MAs in English and whole leather-bound and neatly printed diaries full of nautical lore and wry, engaging 7NC observations. I imagine the DreamWorks hotel manager to be an avuncular Norwegian with a, a rag sweater and a, and a soothing odor of Borkum Riff about him, a guy without sunglasses or hauteur who throws open the pressurized doors to the DreamWorks bridge and galley and vacuum sewage system and personally takes me through offering pithy and quotable answers to questions before before I've even asked them. I, I experience a, a sudden rush of grievance against Harper's Magazine for booking me on the MV Nader instead of the dream word. I calculate by eye the breadth of the gap I'd have to jump or repel to switch to the dream word, and I mentally sketch out the paragraphs that would detail such a bold and William T. Volmanish bit of journalistic daring do as literally jumping from one 7NC megaship to another. This Saturnine line of thinking proceeds as the clouds overhead start to coalesce and the sky takes on its regular clothy PM weight. 
I am suffering here from a delusion, and I, I know it's a delusion, this, this envy of another ship. And still, it's, it's painful. It's also representative of a psychological syndrome that I notice has gotten steadily worse as the cruise wears on. Uh, a mental list of dissatisfactions and grievances that started picayune, but has quickly become nearly despair-grade. I know that the syndrome's cause is not simply the contempt bred of a week's familiarity with the poor old nader, and that the source of all the dissatisfactions isn't the nader at all, but rather plain old humanly conscious me. Or, more precisely, that ur-American part of me that craves in response to pampering and passive pleasure, the dissatisfied infant part of me, the part that always and indiscriminately wants. Hence, this syndrome by which, for example, just four days ago, I experienced such embarrassment over the perceived self-indulgence of ordering even more gratis food from cabin service that I littered the bed with fake evidence of hard work and missed meals. Whereas, by last night, I find myself looking at my watch in real annoyance after 15 minutes and wondering, where the fuck is that cabin service guy with a tray already? And by now, I notice how the tray sandwiches are kind of small, and how the wedge full of dill pickle, footnote 86, by the way, I hate dill pickles, and C.S. churlishly refuses to substitute gherkins or butter chips, end of footnote. I, I notice how the wedge of dill pickle always soaks into the starboard crust of the bread, and how the damn port hallway is too narrow to really let me put the used cabin service tray outside 1009's door at night when I'm done eating, so that the tray sits in the cabin all night and in the a.m. adulterates the olfactory sterility of 1009 with a smell of rancid horseradish, and how this seems, by the luxury cruise's fifth day, <sighs> deeply dissatisfying. Death and Conroy notwithstanding, we're maybe now in a position to appreciate the lie at the dark heart of Celebrity's brochure. For this, the promise to state the part of me that always and only wants, this is the central fantasy the brochure is selling. The thing to notice is that the real fantasy here isn't that this promise will be kept but that such a promise is keepable at all. This is a big one, this lie. Footnote 87. This may well be the big one, come to think of it. And, and of course, I, I want to believe it. Fuck the Buddha. I want to believe that maybe this ultimate fantasy vacation will be enough pampering. That this time, the luxury and pleasure will be so completely and faultlessly administered that my infantile part will be sated. Footnote 88. The fantasy they're selling is the whole reason why all the subjects in all the brochure's photos have facial expressions that are at once 
orgasmic, and oddly slack. These expressions are the facial equivalent of going, and the sound is not just that of somebody's infantile part exulting in finally getting the total pampering it's always wanted, but also that of the relief of all the other parts of that person feel when the infantile part finally shuts up. End of footnote. (laughs) But the infantile part of me is insatiable. In fact, its whole essence or dasin or whatever lies in its a priori insatiability in response to any environment of extraordinary gratification and pampering. The insatiable infant part of me will simply adjust its desires upward until it once again levels out at its homeostasis of terrible dissatisfaction. And sure enough, on the nadir itself, after a few days of delight and then adjustment, the pamper-swaddled part of me that once is now back, and with a vengeance. By Ides Wednesday, I'm acutely conscious of the fact that the AC vent in my cabin hisses loudly, and that though I can turn off the reggae muzak coming out of the speaker in the cabin, I cannot turn off the even louder ceiling speaker out in the ten-port hall. By now, I notice that when Table 64's towering busboy uses his crumb scoop to clear crumbs off the tablecloth between courses, he never seems to get quite all the crumbs. By now, the nighttime rattle of my wonder closet's one off-plum drawer sounds like a jackhammer. Mavernine of the high seas or no, when Petra makes my bed, not all the hospital corners are at exactly the same angle. My desk-slash-vanity has a small but uncannily labial-looking hairline crack in the bevel of its top right side, which crack I've come to hate, because I can't help looking right at it when I open my eyes in bed in the morning. Most of the nightly celebrity showtime live entertainment in the celebrity show lounge is so bad it's embarrassing. And there's a there's a repellent hotel art type seascape on the aft wall of 1009 that's bolted to the wall and can't be removed or turned around. And casual massy conditioning shampoo turns out to be harder to rinse all the way out than most other shampoos, and the ice sculptures at the midnight buffet sometimes look hurriedly carved, and the vegetable that comes with my entree is continually overcooked, and it's impossible to get really numbingly cold water out of 1009's bathroom tap. I'm standing here on deck 12, looking at a dream word, that I bet has cold water that would turn your knuckles blue. And, like Frank Conroy, part of me realizes 
that I haven't washed a dish or tapped my foot in line behind somebody with multiple coupons at a supermarket checkout in a week. And yet, instead of feeling refreshed and renewed, I'm anticipating just how totally stressful and demanding and unpleasurable regular landlocked adult life is going to be now that even just the premature removal of a towel by a sepulchral crewman seems like an assault on my basic rights. And plus now, the sluggishness of the aft elevator is an outrage and the absence of 22.5-pound dumbbells in the Olympic Health Club's dumbbell rack is a personal affront. And now, as I'm getting ready to go down to lunch, I'm mentally drafting a really mordant footnote on my single biggest peeve about the nadir. Soda pop is not free. Not even at dinner. You have to order a Mr. Pibb from the five-star CR's maddeningly ESL-hampered cocktail waitress, just like it was a fucking slippery nipple. And then you have to sign for it right there at the table. And they charge you. And they don't even have Mr. Pibb. They foist Dr. Pepper on you with a maddeningly unapologetic shrug when any fool knows Dr. Pepper is no substitute for Mr. Pibb. And it's an absolute goddamn travesty, or at any rate, extremely dissatisfying indeed. Footnote 89. This right here is not the more than footnote projected supra. But the pseudopop issue bears directly on what was for me one of the true mysteries of this cruise, viz. how celebrity makes a profit on luxury seven NCs. If you accept Fielding's worldwide cruises 1995's per diem on the Nader of about $275 a head, and then you consider that the MV Nader itself cost celebrity cruises $250 million to build in 1992, and that it's got 600 employees of whom at least the upper echelons have got to be making serious money. The whole Greek contingent had the unmistakable set of mouth that goes with salaries and six figures. Plus, simply hellacious fuel costs. Plus, port taxes and insurance and safety equipment and space-age navigational and communications gear and a computerized tiller and state-of-the-art maritime sewage, and then start factoring in uh, the luxury stuff, the top-shelf decor and brass ceiling tile, chandeliers, a good three dozen people aboard as nothing more than twice-a-week stage entertainers. Plus then the professional head chef and the lobster and the Etruscan truffles and the cornucopic fresh fruit and the imported pillow mints, uh, then, even playing it very conservative, you cannot get the math to add up. There doesn't look to be any way celebrity can be coming out ahead financially. And yet, the sheer number of different megalines offering 7NCs constitutes reliable evidence that luxury cruises must be very profitable indeed. Again, Celebrity's PR lady, Miss Wiesen, was, 
notwithstanding her phone voice that was a total pleasure to listen to, she was not particularly helpful with this mystery. The answer to their affordability, how they offer such a great product, is really based on their management. They really are in touch with all the details of what's important to the public, and they pay a lot of attention to those details. Libation revenues par provide part of the real answer, it turns out. It's a little bit like the microeconomics of movie theaters. When you hear how much of the gate they have to kick back to film distributors, you can't figure out how theaters stay in business. But of course, you can't go just by ticket revenues, because where movie theaters really make their money is at the concession stand. The nadir sells a shitload of drinks. Full-time beverage waitresses in khaki shorts and celebrity visors are unobtrusively everywhere, poolside, on deck 12, at meals, entertainments, bingo. Soda pop is $2 for a very skinny glass. You don't pay cash right there. You sign for it, and then they sock you with a printed statement of charges on the final night. And exotic cocktails like wall bangers and fuzzy navels go as high as $5.50. Hari note here. Yeah, wow, these are 1996 prices. <laughs> uh, it's a lot more expensive now. Back to the footnote. The nader doesn't do tacky stuff like oversalt the soup or put bowls of pretzels all over the place. But a Seven and Sea Luxury Cruise's crafted atmosphere of indulgence and endless partying, quote, go on, you deserve it, unquote. This atmosphere more than conduces to free-flowing wine. Uh, let's not forget the cost of a fine wine with supper, the ever-present sommeliers. Of the different passengers, I asked, more than half estimated their party's total beverage tab at over $500. And if you know even a little about the beverage markups in any restaurant bar operation, you know a lot of that $500 going to end up as net profit. Other keys to profitability? A lot of the ship's service staff's income isn't figured into the price of the cruise ticket. You have to tip them at week's end, or they're screwed. Another peeve is that the celebrity brochure neglects to mention this. And it turns out that a lot of the paid entertainment on the Nader is, quote, vended out. Agencies contract with celebrity cruises to supply teams like the Matrix dancers for all the stage shows, the electric slide lessons, and etc., Another contracted vendor is Deck 8's Mayfair Casino, whose corporate proprietor pays a flat weekly rate plus an unspecified percentage to the nader for the privilege of sending their gorgeous dealers and four-deck shoes against passengers who've learned the rules of 21 and Caribbean stud poker from an educational video that plays continuously on one of the at CTV's channels. I didn't spend all that much time in the Mayfair Casino. Uh, the eyes of 74-year-old Cleveland grandmothers pumping quarters into the slots of twittering machines are 
not much fun to spend time looking at. But I was in there long enough to see that if the nader gets even a 10% vig on the Mayfair's weekly net, then Celebrity is making a killing. And that's the end of section 12. Whew, that was... I would, I would have to say that was probably my favorite section um, in the whole essay. This is the section that, that I would, uh, uh, when I would assign this essay uh, in, in class uh, for my students, this particular section is the one that we would really focus on. And, uh, you know, many of my students would, would write their response essays um, in response to this one section. There's just, there's just so much, so much here. Um you know, but in the in the context of this this pandemic, um, one of the things that I that I want to kind of really dive into uh, is the, his whole conceptualization, his whole characterization of of American bovineness. Um, you know, this the species that he he gives us Americans, Peregrinator Americanus, the lumpeni lumpen Americaner, the ugly American. Um, and, you know, for myself as a, as now an adopted, uh, American, this has been a, a, a thing that I myself have wrestled with as well. And it's, it's, it's actually one of the things that I would discuss with my students about what makes an American an American and what does American culture mean, uh, to somebody like me who is an immigrant. Um, and that all seems so distant now, <laughs> um, I remember uh, traveling to Europe um, last year and going for a jog with my friend Marcel in the Netherlands and uh, members of his running group uh, calling me, you know, kind of with a sneer, oh, you American. And uh, which was which was both fun and insulting at the same time. Um, so but all of that also now seems like such a pre-February 2020 world <laughs> to live in. This this pandemic itself, now that it's it's really hit the U.S. and the U.S. is 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 really doing much worse with it than most other countries that has hit so far. The pandemic has taken us on a certain American stupidity to it, uh, to an extent that most world news organizations can't ignore. Uh, headlines on the BBC, headlines on in France's international news, uh, tend to be about the stupidity of American response to this pandemic. Um, more recently, just the past few days, we've seen protests here in the U.S. of Trump supporters protesting against social distancing, protesting against uh, public health officials, protesting against statewide lockdowns. And some of these protests have actually deliberately blocked hospitals and ambulances um, deliberately stopped hospital workers from being able to get to the hospitals where the hospitals themselves are overwhelmed with dying and seriously ill COVID-19 patients. And yet these stupid, stupid, stupid protesters completely deny that that's, that, that crisis is even real. And there is just something so ridiculously predictable and completely, obviously uh, 
uh, real stupidity about this. Racist Trump supporters have been filmed yelling at doctors outside hospitals, telling those doctors to go to China. And this is something that, you know, we in the U.S. have been dealing with. I think I've mentioned before this idea that not only do we have the pandemic of COVID-19 to deal with, but we have been dealing with an underlying virus of Trumpet 16, a virus of, of stupidity and, and cruelty that's, that's just been part of what we've had to deal with. And there's really, it feels like not much more to say to that than what David Foster Wallace already quite eloquently said way back in 1996. There's this you know, this greedy carnivore that we are, this American bovineness of us. And it's going to get more more stupid as the days go on. So in the middle of all that stupidity, you know, we have just one more section of this essay to to experience tomorrow. And so in the meantime, I hope you're all staying safe, staying home, staying healthy, and staying human. Thank you.